As the mist settled on the water, the cheers started to rise. 75,000 screaming fans shouted as the race prepared to start. The German fans were ecstatic, as this was the final race, and so far, the German oarsmen were destroying the competition, with five gold medals and one silver already at the Olympics. But the coronation would have to wait, because the Germans had to beat an upstart American team. Listening to the roars of the crowd, the American nine-man crew team looked at each other and said their mantra. This was the race that they'd been waiting for. This was the race that they spent the last five months training for, and in less than seven minutes, it would all be over. The pressure was immeasurable, with an estimated 300 million people worldwide listening on the radio. But there was something very curious about this American team. Five months prior, most of these nine American young men had never even rowed crew. They were the junior varsity team at the University of Washington, not even good enough to be the best team at their own college. But here they were, in front of Hitler and the rest of the world, in the last rowing event of the 1936 Olympics, fighting to take a gold medal away from Nazi Germany, fighting against teams with infinite resources and oarsmen who had been rowing their entire lives. So how did they get here? What experience did they have in the five months leading up to the Olympics that gave them a glimmer of hope to do the impossible? Let's find out. Welcome to Often Imitated, a podcast about remarkable experiences from the past and how they inspire people to create great customer experiences today. This episode is all about cross-training how the 1936 men's rowing team used unconventional training and strategies to change the sport, and how CX leaders can improve their experiences by doing the same. In this episode, we talk to Dustin Cohn, head of brand and marketing at Goldman Sachs Consumer and Investment Management, to see how he is teaching an old industry new tricks. But first, a word from our sponsors. Often Imitated is brought to you by our friends at Oracle creating data-powered, seamless marketing experiences that delight your customers. To learn more, go to oracle.com slash CX. In the first few minutes of the race, the Americans were falling behind and the German crowd was roaring for their crew who was pulling ahead. The race seemed decided at that point. Further and further, the Germans pulled ahead. It was all but over. That's when the rowing newcomers kicked into gear. It had become their trademark move. Conserve energy for the first half of the race, and then go all out for the big finish. They started gaining, passing their opponents, and working their way up the pack. In the last 800 yards, the Huskies crept ahead and crossed the finish line. Their bodies collapsed in the boat, and the crowd went silent. The Americans, Italians, and Germans were neck and neck. It was a photo finish. As they waited for the verdict, all they could hear was the exhausted breathing of the 27 men who had just expelled every ounce of energy. There was a crackle of static, and the announcement came that the Americans had crossed the finish line 0.06 seconds before the Italians and one second before the Germans. As the audience grew eerily silent, the nine young American men cheered. 
these young men who had only a fraction of the experience and training of their competitors had won gold. Let's look at how they got there. The University of Washington rowing coach Al Ulbrichsen had two teams of nine men. His varsity team was much better, and his junior varsity team was, well, a little rough around the edges. And that's how Al liked it. They were the sons of working-class families. Their parents were loggers, farmers, and shipyard workers. None of them had even rowed crew until they arrived at the University of Washington. Al Ulbrichsen saw that as an advantage. See, crew was for the elite. Rowing was the sport of Oxford and Cambridge, a gentleman's sport reserved for the upper crust who could afford it. And they trained for rowing by, well, rowing. And more rowing. And more rowing. But coach Al Ulbrichsen found young men for his crew team whose upbringing gave them a new perspective to rowing, whose bodies were shaped by real work, allowing them to attack a team race from a slightly different angle. These men developed their strength outdoors on dairy farms and mills and lumber yards in the Pacific Northwest. This was both a way of life for the crew team as much as it was a way to survive. Having grown up through the Great Depression and survived it, the team from Washington approached challenges with a type of grit and optimism that their competitors lacked. Joe Rance, one of the key members of the 1936 Olympic rowing team, was abandoned by his own family at the age of 15. He fended for himself by foraging in the woods of Washington and fishing. Joe and his teammates had seen things that their future competition couldn't really have imagined. Whereas their opponents had fine skills honed by thousands of hours of practice in the water, the Americans had the raw strength that comes with thousands of hours of manual labor. Rather than getting extra practice rowing, one of the boys even spent the summer suspended hundreds of feet above the ground, wielding a jackhammer at the construction site of the Hoover Dam. The nine men created a mantra, LGB, which they told people stood for let's get better, but secretly stood for let's go to Berlin. They were determined. Eventually, they beat the varsity team. And then they started beating other schools. And then they crushed even the highly regarded East Coast schools in the Olympic trials and qualified for the Olympics. After qualifying, the team couldn't even afford to go to the Olympics. The local newspaper had to rally support from the community and volunteered to help foot the bill. The Huskies were outsiders, and they made themselves a force to be reckoned with as they began to dominate the world of crew. And yet it seemed as though the international Olympic teams, in addition to the East Coast teams, couldn't or wouldn't acknowledge a new approach to rowing or a new type of rower. They saw a singular type of background, a singular type of training, and a singular type of upbringing as the only way to achieve success. Because that's what had worked. All of the Olympic gold medalists had trained that way and had come from those backgrounds. But it wasn't just training and strength. The Huskies had an unorthodox strategy that outwitted their opponents. Similar to Muhammad Ali's rope-a-dope technique, they would race slowly at the beginning with a lower stroke rating and let their competition open up a big lead. As their opponents would tire, they would use their superior strength to pull more water with each stroke. From a transcript of the radio recording at the end of the race, still Italy, then Germany, now England, Ah, the Americans, their powerful spurts are irresistible. Their oars rip massively through the water. 
and it made all the difference in the end. Every gold medal in previous Olympics was earned the same old way. But in the previous five months, a new way was being developed with superior training, superior strategy, and none of those teams, nobody in the world knew that they were losing until it was too late. The University of Washington rowers excelled in the water by applying the strengths they developed on land, doing work that the other rowers not only weren't doing, but had never even thought of trying. The crew from Washington proved that tackling a problem with an outsider's perspective can be a tremendous asset rather than a liability. The folks who still clung to a narrow-minded approach to rowing only had to look to the podium to see that things had changed. That group of newcomers, that crew of outsiders, those sons of shipyard workers, loggers, and farmers. Cross-training is something that is relatively commonplace today. We hear of basketball players who spend their summer doing underwater swimming, heavyweight boxers who do ballet to work on their footwork, and NFL quarterbacks who make a serious study of yoga. What that 1936 crew team had was a case of accidental cross-training. It reminds me of Mr. Miyagi teaching Daniel-san how to paint the fence and wash the car, wax on, wax off. That training was for karate movements, and it was more important than actually training in karate. As it turns out, cross-training isn't just for athletes. The lesson is just the same, regardless of what color you're wearing or how calloused your hands are, an outsider's perspective makes an outsized impact. But the key is you have to start from scratch. You have to reimagine what the experience would be like and not just go based off of the status quo. So how does this look in the business world? How can we take an outsider's perspective to create an amazing customer experience? Dustin Cohn, head of brand and marketing at Goldman Sachs, consumer and investment management, is proving just that with Marcus, a new venture for a company over 150 years old. Marcus is a new product at Goldman Sachs. While Goldman is one of the most established and well-known banks in the world, Marcus was designed to be a consumer-first finance product. Now, when you think of a scrappy upstart fighting to change an industry, Goldman Sachs is not likely the first company that comes to mind. When you have over 30,000 employees around the world and are pulling in about $34 billion in annual revenue, you're probably considered along the lines of institution rather than upstart. But when entering a new industry, even behemoths can feel like lightweights. Goldman felt they could redesign consumer finance with their background in investment banking. But in order to realize that advantage, they would need to build from the ground up. So Marcus by Goldman Sachs started with a, a blank sheet of paper, uh, meaning we could uh, talk to consumers uh, and understand their pain points and look to address those pain points. And uh, we had the luxury of not having legacy technology or legacy products or any sort of infrastructure to hold us back from doing this right. There are a few times in a big company where you're creating a new product from scratch and therefore creating a brand new customer experience. Simply put, Goldman thought that they could do it better than the other banks were doing it. And, you know, we were starting from scratch. So, you know, as we understood individual customer needs and journeys, we were able to build this from scratch and do it with the consumer in mind at every step. And so that's really how we started. Uh, it was a personal loan business, but always had the vision of being much more than that. And why is that? because 
the old banks weren't necessarily doing it the right way. They were just doing it the way they had always done it. A new product for an old company. Well, when creating a new product, you need a name. And with a powerful brand like Goldman Sachs, that's pretty easy. Or is it? You know, the other part of starting uh, Marcus by Goldman Sachs was trying to identify how closely to align with Goldman Sachs. And we did a a, a ton of research. We spoke to over 10,000 people at the time to really understand the equities behind Goldman Sachs and and what we were building. And, you know, what we found was that if you just called it Goldman Sachs, the average consumer would not think it's relevant to them. They knew that up until this point or that point, we uh, catered to ultra high net worth individuals and institutions, you know, just to call it Goldman Sachs really did not signal to our audience that Goldman Sachs had an offering that was relevant to them. And then, you know, we've also looked at the other end of the spectrum and explored just calling it a name that nobody had heard of before. And, you know, that created some trust issues. You know, is this company or brand going to be around, you know, next week or next year? Can I trust them with personal information? And so, you know, it seemed to be, you know, a a lot heavier lift to launch something from, from scratch. And the combination of using a new name that signaled that this is something different backed by Goldman Sachs, and that's where the buy Goldman Sachs came from, improved significantly things like customer trust. People were much more likely to give us their social security number or personal income information, and purchase intent went up significantly as well. So sort of took the the best of both worlds where we took the best of, you know, 150-year-old financial institution that's known for being financial experts and have the stability and support of an institution like Goldman Sachs, while also signaling this was something fresh and digital and new and relevant to a whole new new audience. And so that was really the inspiration behind the, the brand architecture of Marcus by Goldman Sachs. What your listeners may or may not know is Marcus came from our founder's name, Marcus Goldman, 150 years ago. So it's named after Marcus. So what does doing it right look like? Who defines what right is? For Dustin, the answer to that question is easy the customer gets to decide what's right for them. If you listen to the customer, they'll tell you. You know, ultimately, that's really been our focus since day one is what are the pain points in financial services and help really unlock the experience that I think customers have have really come to love in, in other categories. And financial services is a bit behind. And, um, you know, we study on an ongoing basis how customers are interacting with us and our competitors for that matter to hone in on those pain points and, and solve them. Goldman Sachs' background as an investment bank meant that they had a different approach from consumer banks. They were much more accustomed to dealing with millionaires and billionaires and providing a hands-on, world-class service. That difference in background perfectly positioned them to provide a more seamless experience, and specifically, a digital experience. That's another big part of our customer experience and the value that we believe we bring to not just our customers, but to to really, you know, anyone. And 
personal finance is very intimidating for most people. They tend to shy away from exploring options just because it's so overwhelming and the sense is it's complicated. And, you know, the language in which a lot of financial institutions speak to consumers um, has a lot of jargon and complexity to it. So, you know, we start with simplification and transparency. That That is a- absolutely fundamental to everything that we do. And so you won't see any jargon or any asterisk in any of our messaging. This focus on a positive and seamless experience extended not just to the language around Marcus, but to the product itself. It is a very important part of, of our product, but it's also a very important part of our promise to our consumers to do things differently and address a pain point and really be very transparent about how we make money, which is simply on on interest. And we actually go as far as to explain how interest works and how it's calculated. In fact, that was one of the number one questions that we got from consumers. When we said no fees ever, they said, well, how do you make money? And so we actually leaned into that and are very overt and, and proud of how we make money because it's not on fees. So what does this actually look like in practice? For the average consumer, it has a huge impact on their financial well-being. So one of the pain points that we found when exploring other personal loan providers was that customers were oftentimes surprised by origination fees. And so an example would be you get approved for a loan for $10,000, but the lender only gives you $9,500 and they keep $500 as an origination fee. And, you know, oftentimes that information is, is buried in the legalese and people are genuinely surprised when, uh, when they don't get the amount that they were approved for and have to pay this fee up front. So we wanted to address that pain point that consumers had. And so we actually offer a no penalty, no fee loan. And we go as far as to say no fees ever. So in addition to not charging an origination fees, consumers are also very bothered and troubled by fees for paying down early or late fees. And the latter is an important one because we took a very different customer experience approach than our competitors. Most competitors, they charge late fees and that's for the simple reason they are trying to get you to pay each month on time. And so we took a different route. So instead of penalizing you, we actually reward positive behavior. So if you pay your loan back each month on time for 12 months, we actually will allow you to defer a monthly payment without being charged a fee or any additional interest. So we actually reinforce your positive behavior with a reward like deferring a payment versus slap you with a a, a fine or a fee for not paying on time. So no fees ever. No fees ever? That sounds great to me. But I would bet it sounds horrible to one of Marcus' competitors who has made millions on those fees. And I would imagine that their reaction would be similar to one of the crew coaches 1935, looking at what the Huskies were going to be doing and telling them, hey, maybe instead of practicing rowing, you should have your crew team work on building some dams or wielding a jackhammer. And the results speak for themselves. In 2019, Marcus by Goldman Sachs ranks highest in overall customer satisfaction by J.D. Power and Associates. And what allowed for this? For Dustin, it all keeps coming back to the different background that Goldman brings to the table. 
looking across financial services, it seemed like personal loans was a good place to start. It really tapped into our customer client centricity. So sort of took the, the best of both worlds where we took the best of, you know, 150 year old financial institution that's known for being financial experts and have the stability and support of a institution like Goldman Sachs, while also signaling this was something fresh and digital and new and relevant to a whole new audience. On the face of it, the 1936 Olympics couldn't seem more different from the bankers at Goldman Sachs. But the two stories come together to demonstrate that no matter your background, there's always value in bringing a slightly different perspective. You need to start from scratch. You need to reimagine the experience. The status quo is not forever. There's always room to improve. And when in doubt, LGB. Let's get better. This is your host, Ian Faison. Thank you for listening to another episode of Often Imitated. If you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe. If you really like it, give us a rating and review. This podcast was narrated by me, Ian Faison, produced by Ben Wilson, with support from Kyle Kelly-Honor Mackie Wilson. Sound design and audio production by Ezra Baker Truppiano. This podcast is brought to you by the generous support of our friends at Oracle, creating data-powered, seamless marketing experiences that delight your customers. To learn more, go to oracle.com slash CX.